0: The reading is from Exodus chapter 20, verses 12 to 17, and can be found on page 78 of the Pew Bibles. Honour your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not cover your neighbor, covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Thank you very much, Penny, for reading uh, to us. Uh, let me add my greeting to Edwards to everyone if you 're new here. Uh, thank you for joining us today you 're welcome. If you are watching on the box um, you 're welcome too it 's glad it 's good to have people uh, tuning in to watch on the Zoom group. Um, I would love it. It would help me if you 're willing to turn actually i deliberately put extra Bibles out so that we could have them um, Bibles in the pew in use. If you're able to turn to Exodus 20, that would be great. Uh, It's on page 77. I'm slightly appalled at my Bible light um, encouragement just to have five of the Ten Commandments in our reading, when we really could usefully have done revision of the whole chapter, but I'll dip in and out of the earlier commandments. We are, as Edward said, Focusing particularly today on the 10th commandment. You shall not covet, this is verse 17, your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male uh, servant, nor his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Which could have been written, could it not, for our world today. uh, Where many of us, until recent years at least, have known an unparalleled prosperity. And materialism has been the dominant philosophy, Uh, not the Enlightenment idea, I think, therefore I am, but I shop, therefore I am. Originally in Latin, um, Descartes' thing was "Cogito, ergo sum, and we've updated that to Tesco ergo sum. Prosperity pushed us to possess... Uh, market research is a multi-billion dollar a year industry and our advertising is driven by all sorts of different appetites, music, sex, nostalgia and so on. We needed in a prosperous age that warning against covetous at that point. But what a change in the last few years. Brexit plus COVID plus war in Europe suddenly puts the command against coveting in a rather different light. Now the desire to acquire comes when we are hard up, not well off. And again, that command against coveting is very apt. However, I wonder if it's occurred to you that that final commandment is different from the last few that we've been looking at. You could say it is in some ways climactic, in some ways more searching than what's gone before. Do you agree with me if I say that the contests have been getting slightly tougher so Commandments 6, 7, and 8 are about actions, murder, adultery, stealing, and it was interesting listening to those who were preaching on those particular commandments, how they had to make a, a case for people to listen, because uh, we were writing ourselves out of the script, maybe, if we think there's easier areas, we might convince ourselves that with a little care we can obey in those areas, though probably that is not quite as true as we'd like to think. But six, seven and eight were like that. The ninth commandment takes us beyond deeds to words, and it is notoriously hard to control the tongue. It was rather nice yesterday, the PCC had an away day, and the preacher from last week said that having preached on, "You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor," he immediately found that area of temptation was real for him last week, which was interesting to me. So we move from deeds to words. And then the Tenth Commandment, of course, takes us into a different world entirely. Not just deeds, not even words. But our thoughts, our desires, and our feelings. The inner, private zone, which we don't let others penetrate. So this is under the surface, isn't it? And which of us honestly thinks that we are off the hook in that department? If I toss a brick through a shop window and steal a watch from the jewelers in town. A passing policeman will hopefully arrest me. But the arm of the law does nothing if I look longingly through the same shop window at a Patek Philippe watch and do nothing. I just want it for myself. A passing policeman can't lay a finger on me for that. But God's law goes deeper. My attitudes, my desires are under God's search right here. And that's uncomfortable, even if at other points I might feel that I'm okay with God's law. Did you know, I don't know if, how well you know uh, the letters of the New Testament, I wonder if you know this, that it was the Tenth Commandment which acted like a blower for the Apostle Paul. He was a Pharisee, he was meticulous about keeping the law, But there's a short word of testimony in his argument in Romans chapter 7 where he says, I wouldn't have known what coveting really was if the law hadn't said do not covet, but sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. Now we don't know exactly what episode in his own life Paul is thinking of, but it's striking that he refers to the tenth commandment to me because as a Pharisee, I suppose... He could tell himself that for many of the other commandments, he was fine. He hadn't done the specific forbidden deed, whatever it was, murder, false witness, Sabbath breaking. But covetousness is rather different, isn't it? It probes the heart. Not just some specific deed, but the desires which give rise to any deed of disobedience. And under the surface of this outwardly respectable Pharisee, Paul knew that measured by this commandment, he had failed. In fact, such was his sin, the rebel heart underneath, that the commandment actually made him want to disobey God at that point. Like a friend of mine who went on a train journey in France, he saw a sign saying, «Défense de cracher, do not spit». And he said he'd never dreamt of spitting on the floor of a train at this point. But then he began salivating profusely just as he read this sign. You know that old limerick. There was an old man from Darjeeling who traveled from London to Ealing. It said on the floor, please don't spit on the floor. So he carefully spat on the ceiling. Now, we're like that with laws, aren't we? But I'm not just talking about being sort of contra-suggestible. There's a rebellious, perversity in us that when God says something, we want to do the opposite because it's God who says it. And at heart, under the surface, we are rebels against him. That's been true since sin entered the world. We are rebels at heart against God. And this commandment, it seems to me, unmasks that heart attitude to God, The tragedy of human sin is not simply that we do wrong things, bad sinful actions. It's that we ever have a heart to do them. It's in the realm of desires that our sinful deeds begin. So I think it's good to conclude with this. And I think it's no accident in God's mind that the 10th commandment wraps up with this uh, area under review. Notice the kinds of areas which the commandment against coveting highlights. Um, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. So homes and property, that area of um, uh, our, our desires is under review at that point. Uh, wanting the domestic security of bigger, better housing. Or maybe more suitable housing for our needs as we get older, wanting the creature comforts. If we see someone else apparently more comfortable in their living arrangements than we are, we want that for ourselves. And God's word says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, the marriage partner. If we are single, that can easily become a longing which eats us up. Or if we're married... Maybe we look back on the heady days of our relationship in the past and we tell ourselves that someone else, someone younger perhaps, someone who happens to be married, will have more chance of giving us what we want. And God's word says, You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Or the working world becomes an area for our covetous desires. It says here, You shall not covet. Your neighbor's male or female servant. Wouldn't my life be better if I had a bigger staff team under me? Um, A more obvious position of leadership, fitting for somebody as dynamic and uh, as good a leader as I. You deserve it, I tell myself, more than that other person. I covet their team. Or more of the perks of the job, better working conditions, a premium ox or ass better office furniture, a company car, better expense accounts, a holiday allowance it might be. Just trying to help us with this. It was fun. I had the, one of our toy oxes to lift up at the first service. It doesn't really hit the target for us, does it? We need to think into the culture then and transpose it into our culture. Maybe rather different, but the equivalent areas, it seemed to me, are exactly where our covetous desires operate. Well, what's the answer? I wonder if you're asking that question. One answer is here in the commandment itself. Did you notice which word in the 10th commandment, in the translation of it we have here, comes most? Have a look down at verse 17 again, or up at verse 17 if you like. It's not actually the word coveting in this translation. It is the word neighbor. Now, one answer to coveting, you see, is this. It's community. God's people were not just a bunch of individuals. He saved a people, and they belonged together. And were to look after each other. In fact, it goes further because he has placed us in the human race where we are all made in God's image, and in that sense, we are, says Paul, by creation, his offspring. Even if it takes a relationship with Christ to bring us into his supernatural family in that sense, still we are neighbors more widely. Even the Ten Commandments bear witness to that, don't they? You find that the alien, the sojourner within our gates, crops up in the Fourth Commandments. And coveting is an assault on my neighbor. When we covet something general, something out there, we might damage ourselves. But as soon as we covet something that belongs to our neighbor, they will be harmed. Even if the desire never leads to a deed, it will affect our thinking about them. Do you suffer from me like like me in, in restaurants, from ordering envy? However long I agonize over the order for dessert. I've got it all worked out and exactly what, what I want, and then when the next door's table has their pudding delivered to the table, that's when I know I made the wrong choice, and I covet what they've got. Now that is trivial, of course. But when it comes to scheming for someone's job or their family or their inheritance, that obviously is serious, isn't it? And there's a whole thought process that goes on at the same time. I deserve better. God, you've been unfair to me. You've shortchanged me. And why should they ever get what I deserve? And that coveting against my neighbor is driven by a pride and a self-obsession which necessarily harms our neighbor. And therefore, this commandment conversely stresses our community. God says, neighbor, neighbor, neighbor. We belong together. We are to care for each other. And if God gives good things to somebody else, our approach is to say, well, great, fantastic. Susu, my wife, has got a brilliant saying. She says, a blessing on someone else is not a curse on me. It's so helpful when she says that, because often I'm jealous if somebody else is blessed. Just because God gives good things to somebody else doesn't mean that he must hate me. I'm so glad we have this commandment on our gift day when we've got an opportunity to be a blessing to our neighbors in this church and beyond with our giving. And I'm glad it coincides with a communion service too. We take communion as individuals, that is true. It's my mouth that must do the eating and the drinking. It's a personal response. But we don't take communion on our own. So keep your eyes open. As you share bread and wine today, because neighborliness, community mindedness is what will cut at the heart, cut out the heart of coveting. So that is one answer to coveting, community. Another answer, which people will often mention, I think is a good answer, is contentment. Where instead of thinking, I must have this, we ought to be thinking, Look at what I already have. God's been so good to me and generous. I'm alive. I live in a beautiful world, in a nice bit of a beautiful world. I live in a prosperous country largely. I enjoy freedom and security. I have friends and family who care for me. I wonder if you can be echoing these as I listen. God's given me health, home, family, friends, supreme. He's given me salvation. He's given me forgiveness, eternal life, a meaningful existence with a purpose to live for. And they are all gifts for which to give thanks. When when we're given a blessing by God, I take it we're to hold it loosely. They are not rights, they are gifts. And I can say as I receive a blessing from God, you've given me so much that It's on an open hand. If you choose to take it away, so be it. But thank you, Lord. I'm content for you to decide what I have and when I have it. I want to suggest we take a moment deliberately in this next moment or two, just a, a moment of quiet, just to thank God as a step towards contentment. Can you list areas quietly where you're determined not to forget his benefits to you? and to call them to mind and thank him for them. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and forget not all his benefits. We've, we've got to thank God for them because he's the author of all the blessings we've enjoyed. And if he is providing for us, we can be content. So I've given you a couple of answers. I'm sort of riffing from the commandment at this point. Uh, community, well, I think that was in there because of the mention of the neighbors. Contentment. And one final answer that seems to me is important and overlooks the the whole of the Ten Commandments. Covenant. For this we need to go behind the Tenth Commandment to the covenant of God itself. I think I said earlier that this commandment is different. Well, that's not strictly true. The commandments hang together. Um, The Bible is actually full of cautionary tales which make exactly that point we've been thinking about, how the, the commandments hang together. David sees Bathsheba from his palace while she's washing on a rooftop nearby, and he wants her. He covets his neighbor's wife. What follows? Well, disobeying commandment number 10 leads to breaking commandments number 6 and 7. Uh, he, he commits adultery... And he has her husband, Uriah, bumped off adultery and murder. Or King Ahab. um, This story may be less well known. He sees Naboth's vineyard, his family property, um, bordering on his own land. And it would be fantastic just to incorporate that, wouldn't it? But it's part of Naboth's family real estate. And it's almost as if he covets his neighbor's home, therefore. Well, commandment number 10, bites the dust. And with his wife Jezebel's help, so does commandment 6, murder. Commandment 8, stealing. Commandment 9, false witness. Because Naboth is stitched up um, by some thugs. And uh, false witness results. You see what the 10th commandment is highlighting? It's unmasking the heart and our desires. We've seen that. And if I break the law at this one point, I will in all likelihood break it elsewhere. If I break any one commandment, if I choose at that point to set aside God's authority over me, well, haven't I become the authority in all my life? If I break the 10th commandment, it's no surprise that in other areas I will rebel against God as well. I'm not so much a lawbreaker if I break the law at any point. I am a lawmaker. I'm the one that thinks that I'm in charge. And he, the sovereign Lord, who has a right to speak into my life, is sidelined. I'm a rebel against him. So the God who calls his people to himself and makes a covenant with them, is in this law saying, be true to me, love me, be loyal, be one who keeps covenant. In the 930 service, I, um, I, I've been sharing the pulpit today with, with somebody. I introduce people to um, Ollie. Ollie Orange, or, or Oli Orange, because he's got an O in the middle. The, 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 the commandment against coveting tells us not to try and fill the hole with idols, things that we look to, that other people have that we think, if I just have that, it'll satisfy me. And we bunged a whole load of things in. Um, we had to close up the hole and say, look, we're made for something better, aren't we? We're made. For a relationship with God, not for a relationship with things that we set our hearts on, things that you've got that I covet. So, um, sorry, I have to disappear for a second. Um, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Him. And the covenant is key, therefore. And I can't do it now without my assistant Sheila that was helping behind the stage this morning. It's the relationship with Jesus Christ, the King of the Covenant, that delivers us from that uh, covenant-breaking rebel heart that always seeks other gods for itself. Down you go, Ollie. Stay there and uh, don't move. Don't knock me over. The things we covet so often are good things, there's no doubt about that, but they are poor substitutes for God. And only in the covenant will we find true satisfaction. We'll never find it in the idols that we set our hearts on. I have a slight fear that by looking at each commandment one by one, we've played into the hands of one possible misunderstanding of the Old Testament law. We look at one area of behavior each week in a series like this. So it was false witness last week, and we hold out the standards of behavior which are supposed, supposed to mark God's people, high standards of truth-telling in what we say about others. And then we easily put that alongside other standards, upholding marriage and so on. And very subtly, we make law-keeping the basis of our relationship with God, which is a fundamental misunderstanding of the law and of the Ten Commandments. Remember how the the Ten Commandments began? Just flip back over to page 77, Exodus 20, verse 1. God spake all these words. Then verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. So the rescue from slavery that verse 2 talks about happened before Mount Sinai and the giving of the law. God had set his people free from Pharaoh's tyranny in Egypt before at Sinai he revealed how they were to live. In other words, the law wasn't given to make Israel into God's people. God had done that. When he saved them, somebody put it like this. They said the Ten Commandments aren't the path into the home. They are more like the hearth inside the home. The place of warmth and intimacy inside a relationship with God for those who are in his family. And if you think about it, the way the commandments are so often expressed as negatives makes the same point. You shall have no other gods before me. Or you shall not covet your neighbor's house. They are boundary lines that you are not meant to go over. But they don't so much show you how to make friends with God as how to break friendship with God. He has rescued you. He's put you into a relationship with him. So stay within that relationship. Jesus first. Seek first his kingdom. And his righteousness. Make that the object of your desires and your longings, and everything else will be thrown in into the deal as well. That's a free translation of Matthew six, verse thirty-three. I want to end, just as a, a, a reminder of that lovely rescuing act of God in Jesus Christ, which is the foundation of our covenant. With some words from two Corinthians chapter eight, you'll know these words. It's a great verses for a gift as well. This is uh, 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you through his poverty might become rich. That totally recalibrates our junked-up views of prosperity, doesn't it? It says that we are all, before God, spiritually bankrupt. We've rebelled against him in heart and deed, and we cannot pay our way out of that trouble. We're in poverty. But Jesus, the one who's truly rich, has come from heaven into our world. He's taken our sin on himself on the cross. He's paid our debts with Almighty God so that we can be rich, And no real riches. And that covenant which God invites us into liberates us from coveting. We've got a chance at communion now to be thankful for it and to rejoice in it. Well, let's pray and then I'll hand over to Edward for the next bit of the service. How we thank and praise you, Heavenly Father, for the wonderful grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that in him we have riches. We who are poor beyond all reckoning. And we want to satisfy ourselves with what he has provided. We thank you for good gifts in your world that we enjoy every single day. And we don't take them for granted. But we thank you above all for that indescribable gift in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that heart satisfaction in him and contentment in him would cut the nerve of covetousness in our hearts. Transform us by your Holy Spirit more and more to give ourselves the way that Jesus Christ gave himself for us. And not to grab and get for ourselves, we pray. we pray even as we turn to communion now. That, that sense of being part of your covenant community would uh, thrill our hearts afresh and bind us together in our commitment to each other. We pray it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.